Good morning, Redemption. Good to see everyone here this morning. This is uh, Redemption's third year anniversary, so we're going to spend some time celebrating what God has done in our church. Before I do, I've had a lot of people ask me about Tom, so let me just get this out of the way. I forgot last hour, so I'm certain I'm cursed now, but um, I got one text from Tyler that said he is uh, cheery and sore, so something bad happened. Like, he's cheery, which is not him. They worked on something more than just his heart. No, that's good news. He's up and around and, um, and doing well, as far as I know. So uh, he's, by the way, you're going to want more information than he'll ever give you. So just relax. I mean, he's a very private guy. So we'll let you know when he tells us stuff, too. Redemption Church uh, started three years ago, um, not as a merger, as some would say, but as an idea. And the idea was... Uh, Pretty simple, that we could be better together, do more for the kingdom than we could on our own. And so with that in mind, East Valley Bible Church and Praxis Church in Tempe and Arcadia joined together in in 2011 to form a church. And the mission of the church was really simple, and that was to glorify God by strengthening and birthing healthy local congregations, right? To see God extend his kingdom through people who love him. And... uh, and he's done that. I think it, by the end of 2011, Second Mile Church, which was a plant of East Valley Bible Church, uh, wanted to be part of redemption. And so we kind of joined with them again. By the end of 2011, there were now four congregations. And we were trying to have the language of what, what, is, what are we now? We're kind of a Frankenstein. I mean, there's no model to follow. So we spent that year really finding definitions to describe what we do, and we ended up really believing and praying up that God wanted this to be about leaders and congregations. And so all over the uh, city and the state, you're going to find redemption churches that, that have elder boards and pastors and, and leaders. And, uh, and I think that's the strong suit of redemption in that it does raise up other generations, and, and I'm excited about that. I, it was, uh, I think, 2012 that... Uh, West Mesa and Flagstaff were planted out of Redemption Church. And this last year, we told you about Humber Village also being joined into Redemption. Now, seven congregations, that's, that's the number of what we are. But because we're so into specific congregations with this as a rule, that the Redemption Church exists for the congregations, not the congregations for redemption, we spend a lot of time, a lot of good work, just dealing with what we have in each, each local assembly. But we don't get a chance to say corporately as often maybe as we'd like all the things that God is doing with this philosophy of better together. So I wanted to, uh, you to indulge me just for a couple of minutes as I tell you some of, the, some of the stories of what God's doing in redemption now after three and a half years. Uh, Tempe has seen a, a lot of change over the last uh, couple of years. Specifically there as a, as a church, we're kind of nomadic without a place for seven of their years existence. And this last year, because of redemption, we're able to purchase the property they're on in Tempe, which is one of the reasons that uh, we came together is that we could do more together. And, uh, and, and out of that ministry, there have been some, this last year, 60 baptisms. They have uh, used their campus to reach that community. Uh, they have uh, seen so many good things happen. They've raised some $80,000 plus just at Christmas Eve to, to deal with the foster care and adoption, as, as well as feeding the... Uh, the homeless in, in Tempe. So God's using uh, Ricardo and his team and, and doing some great stuff there. 
Uh, another congregation would be West Mesa. Now, we've used plant like they're a church plant. It's official now beginning 2014. They've transitioned from a plant to a full congregation. And there's several things that make that happen. And that is that you, you grow up enough to have a few particular things in place. One is that you're able to be self-governed, leaders, elders, pastors, and, and that has taken place at West Mesa. You also are... Um, the ability to raise up disciples, new converts, baptisms, and God is doing that as well, and, and self-sustaining financially. They are, they are meeting their budget and able to support themselves now for the first time. So here we are now in 2014 seeing a church plant that started two years ago on its own and, and flourishing and, and growing. And uh, that's, a, that's an incredible story. And just, just another side note, uh, they're kind of nomadic as well, but this wonderful kind of interweaving of redemption provided for them a space. So let me just tell you a quick story. Uh, they're in a location where my first piano was. The, the, the owner of that, that business goes to Gilbert, who offered to us the ability to rent that space, and then we moved some of his rental needs over to the Tempe campus. So here we got three congregations serving each other to have this church find a home, and that's a, that's a good story to share better together, right? Um, Gateway has seen so many things happen there as well. They are growing. I think they're up to 25% in growth this last year. They're the redemption communities have gone from 14 to 24. Uh, they have had 32 baptisms. They are as well renting property, but because of Redemption Church, we were able just, just recently to purchase 10 acres right adjacent to where they're at so they can begin to raise money and build, you know, and become a permanent location, um, which is a great thing. Uh, Luke is responsible for the residents, and you, you don't hear about this very often, but there are several men who are in a training process, pastoral church planning process, and Luke and, and all the leaders of redemption facilitate the training of those men as we uh, see what God would have us do and where we'd have us go, and so that takes place there. Um, Alhambra Village is, is so cool to talk about. They, uh, we told you about... Uh, them joining Redemption a few months ago. And uh, they've seen exponential growth this last year. I think they've gone up 60% in numbers. Now, they're a small church, so growth is, is pretty huge. And, uh, and so they've been baptizing and raising up leaders. And just recently, we, we uh, understand that there's another church that wants to kind of be folded into Alhambra Village. They might have the potential of growing by 100% just in a matter of months now with this other church coming in. Great, great big things happening there with Aaron Daly and his, t his team. The other thing I want to tell you about would be uh, the reality of Flagstaff. Flagstaff is uh, Vince Garvey, and some of you have been up there and visited, and they've, they've got a really killer location, and God has used the simplicity of it for his glory. And that one story particularly is that they, uh, when they lead worship and, and do their services, they kind of prop the doors open when it's warm weather. And people walking by the street would hear what's going on, two young men in particular, and they heard it, and they walked in, sat down, were converted, took communion, and now are joining Redemption Community. Just a simple expression of the body. Uh, looking for a, a more prominent place, a larger place to grow, I think they're 115 now. They just got secured the rental of the Orpheum Theater, theater downtown, which is like the coolest spot uh, you can have. And, and so I think God is really getting them ready to... To, to grow in really big ways. Every single congregation has met its budget and has uh, raised up leaders, growing small groups, and is having an influence 
in their, in their community, which is a great story. Gilbert's no different. We've had so many things that I have a hard time. I have a horrible memory, by the way. And so I write these things down because I can't remember uh, the totality of what God has done. But he has done so much this year in this transition year. Um, this building represents a huge undertaking. But just to give you some of the, s- the statistics that you can celebrate for God's goodness, we've, we've baptized over 100 people this year. We've had uh, probably 11 more uh, small groups of redemption community start with many more on the way. Uh, Brian and Jake started Launch Point, which is a way to connect and get people into groups. 130 people in just the last several months have traveled through that on their way to small groups connection. We've grown by 200 people in the last few months of opening this uh, space, um, which is really encouraging. But, I, I, you know, we, uh, we told you, I think last time Neil taught, he talked about the financial position Going into the last two weeks of the year, we are 400000 behind in general giving. Well, I just got to tell you, um, by the end of the year, we caught up, in essence. Yeah? <laughs> Amen. And, and we have, uh, Neil, I go into Neil's office on a, you know, daily basis and talk kind of details. And we were, I was saying, Neil, tell me where you think we're going to land this year. Guess, predict. You know us. You know where we're going. And we both kind of concluded that we're probably going to come up 100000 short. We set our budget for this next year based on that number. And uh, here we are now a week, probably a week or eight days after the, the new year. And Neil came, comes to my office and said, hey, have you been praying? And I said, no, I should have been. But um, he said, we just received a post-dated check for the amount that basically catches us all the way up to our budget. So I think it was 6000 7000 short of the actual number, which $4.1 million was the budget this year. So we made that. Um, the end of the year was impressive. We asked you to give to Christmas Eve to uh, foster care and adoption and also win souls for God. And we raised $87,000 just on that one night. Amen. Uh, as well, and this is encouraging, $135,000, $140,000 given to the building, uh, $780,000 given to general fund. We had over a million dollars given in two weeks in December towards the general fund and the mission, yeah? Which, I don't know how to, I don't know how to measure that, but I take it one simple way that God is just still wanting to hang around and do good things. That's as simple as I take it. And, you know, the Christmas Eve offering, redemption-wide, we raised over a quarter of a million dollars towards ministries of foster care and adoption, win souls for God, and feeding the poor in our city. And uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good thing to hear about. If you want to talk about better together, um, that's why we do this. And that's something to celebrate. Amen? Amen. I, uh, I think about you and your perspective on redemption more than you think I do. I, I know when we use language, it's about a big multi-congregational church. Most of congregations you'll never visit. And I think, how will these people really contextualize? How will they understand it? How would they participate in it? How would they put their heads around it? And, and I understand it's a challenge, okay? But I think it's this simple, to be honest with you. And that is, if it's true that Redemption Church exists for the benefit of the congregations, not the congregations for Redemption Church, then this, this equation would also be true. That uh, redemption is only as good as local congregations are strong. And th- therefore, all the rules apply. Then local congregations are only as strong as the people who call it home. Right? I want to take some time today to remind you of what we do as a church. 
not redemption. I don't want you to think that big. I want you to think about you and your place here. And if we get that right, then our contribution to the big R will be great and it'll be a blessing and God will be glorified and you'll participate at the highest level. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to remind you of the first church. I'm going to use the first church ever to give us an example of what we commit ourselves to if we're thinking about participating in the big picture of God's kingdom here, at least in Arizona and in the city of Phoenix. Do you ever wonder what people would say about us? I have no idea if I'll ever know. Would they say, man, those people love Jesus? Oh, my gosh, those people know how to pray. They know how to worship. They love each other. I I wish they would say that. I hope they say that. I don't know if I'll ever know. The advantage of looking at Acts chapter 2 is we know what they thought of the first church. And there's things that the first church did that affected how people talked about them and the influence they had. So it's worth our time to spend some time reflecting on that church. So let's read verse 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, prayer, and the prayers. And, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray as we uh, begin to talk. God, I thank you for Jesus. There isn't anything to boast about but him and grace alone. We are a church simply because you save sinners. So whatever you've done in redemption, whatever you do it at Gilbert or any other congregation is simply a testimony to your greatness and your promise to build your kingdom and let nothing stop it. God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, maybe convicted hearts to hear this in a fresh way and to ask really serious questions about our life in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. There's a word. It's like the... uh, third word in my text, and they were devoted. Um, That word devoted is important to me because it says a lot. It's the idea of commitment. Um, My personality leans this way, but it's passion, it's intensity, it's focus, it's perseverance. That's what that word really means. Now, I want to stop for a second and say, just being devoted doesn't get us anywhere, church. Because people can be devoted to lots of things, right? Uh, It's a new year. Some of you are devoted now to working out and losing weight. Great, happy for you. But as far as the kingdom's concerned, it doesn't move the ball down the field. You can be devoted to your family and your job and making money and having a hobby or going on vacation. You can be devoted to lots of things. Devotion isn't necessarily the point. It is the point of what you're devoted to. And this church was devoted to the kingdom. And I suppose if we are going to stop for a second and, and ask questions, let's, let's look at how we are devoted to the kingdom of God, and specifically the ways in which it's described here. 
Here's the first thing uh, that Luke tells us in verse 42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching or to the scriptures, to the word of God, right? Now, verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people were converted the very first day of the church. You're talking about overload of discipleship needs. And what they committed themselves to was the apostles' teaching so they could grow up in, in Christ Jesus. They were passionate about it. They were on fire for the word of God because that's how they learned about their Savior and their God. That's how they learned about loving each other and the focus of the kingdom in the world in which they live. That's how they learned to deal with suffering, okay? And so they were devoted to it. They were hungry for it. And, And I don't have to tell you that that devotion needs to be replicated in every person who says they love Jesus. So let's ask the question, does your devotion to the word of God match the word devoted? Does it match the intensity of what is described here? And you know this works for all things. If you're really going to know Jesus, it requires effort. If your version of intake of the word is showing up here for an hour and 15, I'm glad you're here. I really am. But if you do nothing else, then your growth is stunted. There needs to be an ongoing self-feeding nature to a true converted life. Okay, so let me just use this as an illustration. Pretend for a second, uh, if you can go back in your life, and you just get married, and right after the ceremony, you, you decide to make no commitment to get to know one another. You want to know what you, you don't ever learn about what each other likes, and you, you don't decide what the expectations are. Are we going to have kids? You have no interest in understanding each other whatsoever. And so what you would say about that relationship, that doesn't look loving at all. It doesn't look healthy at, at all. And yet, here's the Here's the reality. There are far too many professing believers, far too many people who say they love Jesus who neglect getting to know what they say with their mouth is their first love. I love you, Jesus, because you first loved me. I love you with everything I am because I was a sinner without hope, and you came to this world to die for me. You're my first love, and yet he gets not our first efforts, right? The backbone of Redemption Church is the teaching of the Scriptures. Every congregation all around the city, now in Flagstaff, there are men who are preaching the word of God. Every week we gather as pastors, the teaching part of this ministry, at a thing called the Preaching Collective. And 10 days before we preach a message, we open up the text that we're going to teach and we study together, deciding what's the intent of the author, what's the big idea, where are we going, what do our people need. Every week, because it's the, it is the backbone of what we do. I have nothing to tell you. But God does to the scriptures, amen? He has something to offer, life and peace and joy unspeakable and full of glory. And if we don't dig into and know the God of the word, then we won't be a transformed people who look like and reflect this God we say we love. Make sense? So the the challenge is to ask you a question. Are you inputting the word of God into your life on a regular basis? Do you understand its intent? I know that people this time of the year have a tendency to do the resolution thing, you know, starting now, I'm going to lose 100 pounds, um, what, whatever your resolution is. Maybe you should consider maybe this 2014 be a time where you go, okay, I'm, I'm not going to play games with my relationship with God anymore. I'm going to get to know him in a, in a deep way. Start a regular reading routine. Now, let me just encourage you. It, in 2014, can't get easier. They have programs like on your phone and applications where they'll send you the Bible text to read. You don't even have to be smart, all right? All you got to do is just punch a couple numbers and it comes to you. 
If you want to be more uh, tutorial than that, you can go over to the bookstore and grab a one-year Bible. You can get a reading plan from us. What, whatever you need to do, start. Start. Get regularly into the Word of God. Take it in. Be like this first church who were passionate for the apostles' teaching. Amen? There's another uh, truth that uh, we got to look at from this church. They were devoted to each other. You see it here? Not only the apostles' teaching, and it says, and the fel fellowship. Let me just make this point. This is far more deeper than just hanging out, okay? Fellowship has some depth to it that uh, has some cost implied to it. But it's far more than just socializing and eating together, although those are parts of it. This is some kind of commitment. Look, look at verse 44 and 45, and you tell me how serious it is. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. The, the fellowship that they shared wasn't a potluck, okay? The fellowship they shared was their life and their service and their encouragement. It is, it is a, another way to say it. The Bible talks about the one another's. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Confront one another. Confess your sins to one another. All the one another's in Scripture are implied to this idea, this context, of the fellowship of believers. And uh, these people knew what it was like to follow Jesus. And, by the way, knew what it was like to pay the price for following Jesus. It was very costly for them. So if you were an employer, a, a, a businessman doing business, naming Christ, man, you might suffer proceeds and profit for your business. You might lose an employee. If you were a Christian, you might lose your family because they would reject you. There was a high cost to this. And what happened for these believers is that they looked at each other and said, you're my family. You and I share deeper understanding and heartbeat than I do with my own blood. You are my family. Now, they use words like brothers and sisters to describe each other because of the deepness of their relationship, a special, a special bond. Now, Luke wrote this, right? Luke is a doctor. As a physician, he's very precise in what he says, and he uses the word koinonia to describe fellowship. That's the word we get. And that word has some, like, depth to it that I don't think we're ready for when we're talking about belonging to one another. And the depth of it is sharing. You see it in verse 44 and 45. Intimacy, closeness is what the text says. And you and I who have lived with Christ any length of time know what this is like. When you bump into a Christian somewhere in your day, somewhere in your world on vacation or, or in some kind of restaurant or business or whatever, and suddenly you're having conversations with them that you can't have with anybody else. It goes way deeper right away, right? I have this experience almost on a weekly basis. I meet someone who's brand new to the church, and they want to sit down and get to know me or get to know us, and we'll talk, and we'll start with this. Who are you? Where are you from? Kids, what do you do for work? All surface, all minor stuff. And then, then we say, well, how did you get to know Jesus? And suddenly the, tra the conversation transforms into some kind of deep, like, I get it, man, I'm a sinner too. God saved you in your world just like that? Wow, that's a unique way that God saved you and how he, he reveals his goodness and his mercy to us. It's overwhelming to have conversations with strangers that suddenly you're deeper than your own parents. It just blows my mind. But that's exactly fellowship. 
sharing your heart because you share a Savior. Do you understand? That's what these people did. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, he understood how important this one another piece was. He gives this instruction to the church. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I have to tell you, and you probably already know this, this truth is becoming increasingly unpopular. I was reading a forum this week, and the forum was... uh, where people, Christians, quote-unquote, were discussing the value of church and the one another's through the lens of being disappointed by the church. Now, that's happened to everyone, right? Where you, you thought they should do this and they didn't do that. Or they failed you this way and they failed you that way. And so these Christians were looking at the church through the lens of disappointment and saying, I give up. Because they're all like this. They're all hypocrites. They all fail me. They all screw us over. I'll just stay at home. I'll do Jesus all by myself. I want you to know something. You can't. And obey the Bible. Right? So you need to understand for me to tell you this. It's not a cheap way for me to do a commercial about your attendance here. I don't care. I'm glad you're here and I love you. But here's the point. I have to tell you that God commanded for you. I have to tell you that. And I have to tell you this, too, that you will not grow as you should grow based on how God has put us together if you neglect the one another's. There is a mechanism called discipleship, life on life for life. And if you choose to be out of it, I'm going to tell you that you're a struggler. It's going to be hard for you. Someone outside of your story can't speak into your story. And you go private about your sin and struggles, and you don't know how with it, and you don't have anybody praying for you, and nobody's supporting to you. This church understood clearly what it was to be in fellowship. So let me go on and talk about what else they were devoted to. It says here in verse 42, they were devoted to, committed to worship and prayer. And they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread and prayers. Um, Breaking of bread can refer to, probably does to both and, eating together, just like we do, um, communion, which we just celebrated, but probably both in light of this, the idea of worship. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about communion. It's far deeper than just this moment we share with the Lord's, at the Lord's table with the elements. He talks about this body life. Now, listen. He says, look, look at these people meeting together there in the early church, in one another's houses, breaking bread, declaring the, the Lord's death until he comes. Many of them were slaves, ordinary people, having a hard time and being persecuted and maligned, sick in body perhaps, and some sick even in their minds. But they were there, going through this weary, evil world with the world and the flesh and the devil all against them, but they broke bread and they remembered not only what Jesus had done, but what he was going to do. They lifted up their heads. They said, we are destined for glory. We are the children of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We have our inheritance incorruptible and unfading and undefiled reserved for us in heaven. What does it matter though men kill us, though they revile us, though the whole world be destroyed? We have an inheritance that can never be taken away. It is ours. It will be there until he comes. Then he will take us to be with him, and we will spend our eternity with him in his glorious presence. How about a paragraph for worship? That's worship. Amen? When we get our focus on what God is doing big picture and understand our belonging to each other is about his glory revealed in our lives together as as we wait for his 
return. So communion in the first church was radically different than how we perceive it. It was true worship. This next phrase that he talks about is that they gave themselves to prayers. Now, I want you to notice the plurality of that word. Not just a prayer, but somehow this has the, the idea to me that they were disciplined in their prayer life, formal times, regular times of, of, of prayer. In fact, you should know this, but prayer is the essence of Christ's ministry. Obviously, he came to redeem, but everywhere in his life, here is the creator, redeemer, sustainer of all the universe who always had a connection to his father through prayer. As an example to us, the church, to pray. Uh, Luke, who is uh, so precise in what he says, helps us see the power behind what Jesus was doing. Now, all the other gospels... They say that Jesus was in the Jordan River when the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Luke tells us, he's the only one that tells us that it was after he prayed. Uh, The other Gospels tell us that Jesus chose the 12 disciples. Only Luke tells us it was after a night of prayer. The other Gospels say that Jesus, that he died on the cross. We see that story clearly, but, but Luke says that while he was dying on the cross, he was praying for those who persecuted him. Jesus prayed. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus was transfigured. Luke tells us it was while he was praying. The Gospels tell us that the disciples went to bed and slept, but Jesus, as it was custom to, got up and prayed. The point of it is that Jesus lived this consistent, ongoing, regular, never-hang-up prayer life with, with his Father. And so when the early church is being focused on here in Luke chapter 2, one of the things that they were known for, devoted to, was that kind of prayer life. Now, I'm going to confess something to you, and I've told you this before. Prayer is very difficult for me. I have to fight for it. I have to fight for it with everything I can because I'm probably a more programmed doer, right, than an asker. And so I have worked and worked, and I'm nowhere near uh, to the place I need to be, but I, I think this is universally true as far as I see it. There's very few people committed to this kind of prayer. Now, I'm not saying you don't pray. I'm not saying we as Christians don't pray. I'm just saying the power, the power of the corporate body gathering for regular times of prayer and banging on heaven's door and asking for things that God could do that only he could do, right? We have a tendency to have it not fit in our schedule. and We don't have time for it because I'm tired. I got stuff going on. And I, I understand that. Listen, I do. But I have to tell you this as well. If you neglect prayer, just like if you neglect the word, just like if you neglect the fellowship of the body, you're going to be stunted in your growth. And you're not going to see the things that God could do because you're choosing to go it alone. The church prayed. They were devoted to it. You're going to see in the next couple of months, I'm going to invite you to some prayer times. Now, I've said this to you before, and I want you to write it down and, and actually think about it. We need to pray together. There's too much at stake, right? And so I'm going to invite you to things, praise and prayer nights. Hopefully, they're not so expensive that you can't afford to do them, but, but I want to invite you to this kind of discipline, this kind of effort on our part to be devoted to king in prayer. The other thing I want you to notice about this early church, and I love this part, these people in verse 43, it says, um, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The the word for awe is the word phobia. It's where we get the word fear, right? So uh, claustrophobia, fear of, of being in closed spaces, Um, But I want you to get the nuance of this word. It's not terror. It's respect. It's um, reverence. It's respecting 
God and his power. It's revering his standards and his word. It is, it is uh, in awe of who he is as creator and ruler of the universe. These are people who take God seriously. Okay, that's, that's what it means to be in awe of God, to have a phobia of God. He is so not like me. He is so all-powerful. I'm in, I'm in fear. I'm in truly reverent fear of him. I want you to notice a word or a phrase in my Bible, the phrase, every soul. Do you see it there? It's interesting to me that this, this awe just didn't apply to the church. Everybody was in awe of God. I mean, it's like when the church was doing its thing and praying for each other and serving each other and being close to each other and meeting each other's needs and they were listening to the scriptures and developing all of that, the world was watching and go, man, there's something going on in the church over there. I don't know who these people are, but they keep talking about Jesus, and it's winsome to me because what they do doesn't happen anywhere else. People don't live like that, and everybody was in awe. I have to ask this question. If the world around us isn't at awe with our God, maybe it's because they don't see the awe of God in the people of God. Do we, church, Go to work, go to school, live every day with this reverential, um, holy fear of who God is and what he has said to such a degree and live it out to such a degree that the world can't deny there's something different about us. And they look at us and go, dude, that's cool. Whatever it is, I'm won over by that. That's what the early church did. This church was growing and learning so fast about their Savior and as they grew, they became more in awe with God's greatness. And how is that? that's totally how it works, right? So God reveals to you your sin and your inability. And then suddenly on the heels of that, he shows you how great he is by grace in the, in the gospel. And God gets bigger. These people were learning about God's truth and God's wisdom. And we know this, right, that God transforms his people. And they're not the same people they used to be. And God gets greater. These people are seeing miracles all around them. So people are getting saved. Truly the ultimate miracle. Needs are, are, are being met. And prayers are being answered. And reconciliation and forgiveness is happening around them. And, and uh, there is awe. <laughs> I love that. Undeniable something's different. So there's another thing that I want you to see about the early church. They shared an attitude. 46 and 47. <laughs> And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Can you guess what word describes the attitude of the first church? Joy. These people had joy. Not circumstantial happiness, like everything's going the way I want it to go. I've got no problems and no complaints. This church was experiencing persecution and pushback and rejection, right, and cost. People were going to prison. People were losing their jobs and losing their families over following Jesus. In spite of all that, they had joy. And we know what Peter says about joy. It's unspeakable and full of glory. It's hard to define. But it superabounds in our circumstance. That's the kind of joy these people had. In spite of all that stuff, I love that. Gosh, if the church needs a shot of anything, it needs this. I think the church, and I'm going to speak about the church universal, not like I'm an authority or anything, but I am old enough to see it. We have suffered from a cancer, and the cancer is consumerism. 
We treat church like we do Walmart or a restaurant or any other store we go to. We kind of want it our way. In fact, we spend most of our time evaluating things that we don't prefer, and we leave critical. And that is not the heartbeat of the church. The first church was so overwhelmed with God and his goodness, all they had left was joy. They could see things and see things Outside of their preference, they could see the way, the way God was working and what he was doing, and their predominant reaction to it was gratitude because of what God has done. Now, I'm going to just tell you, church, if, if you complain, if your heart isn't full of joy, then I'm telling you, you're not spending the majority of your time thinking about what God has done for you. When you get to heaven and you stand before the Father, it'll be crystal. You're going to see his holiness and your sin in light of his holiness, and you're going to fall down, and you're going to say, thank you. I don't need anything. I don't have to have it my way. I am thankful that you saved a sinner like me. And that predominant expression is winsome to the world that's watching. And when he says at the end of this, this chapter that they found favor with the world around them, that's what did it. They didn't look like everybody else. They, they worshiped, right? Worship is the most odd thing in all the world. It doesn't happen anywhere else but in the church. And when the world comes to the church and they see us love something other than us, outside of our circumstances, it blows their mind. And they ask questions. And if we have joy in spite of everything else, they're going to ask. And they're going to have favor with them. They shared that impact. You see that last verse? Praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added daily to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The impact was on their community. They had that favor because Jesus was everything to them. Nobody could ignore it. All their love, all their compassion, all the service, all the forgiveness, all the obedience. These people were the best neighbors, the best employees, the best employers, the best citizens in all Jerusalem. These people were godly. And it didn't connect to their Happiness, temporal happiness, it was joy that's connected to God. And the re reality of it is it impacted the lost world. And I'm not surprised. Who wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? Who wouldn't look at something like that, joy, that's undefined and not connected to circumstances? And go, I, I don't have that. I want that. That's the impact of the church. You, I think God has done all he needs to do for redemption. If he doesn't do anything else, praise be to God. But here's what I know. He's not done with us. And redemption is only as good as congregations are strong and congregations are only as good as people who follow Jesus. So church, this year, can you just simply ask yourself some questions based on Acts 2? Are you devoted? Are you passionately devoted? Or do you have your excuses of why it doesn't work out? Are you disappointed in your God because you have expectations? Are you trusting in his word? Are you trying to get to know your God, your God through his word? Are you with the one another's? Do you make worship a priority? Are you in awe of who God is? And is your life so transformed that no one can deny it? Those are questions that we can ask, right? Amen? I've been praying before you got here, and I pray this all the time. That's how simple it is. I'm not, I'm not that complicated to go deeper. This is as simple as it is. God transforms sinners who look and act transformed. And when we do, his mission, his mission goes. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. God, I thank you so very much for Jesus, our Savior.
God, I thank you that uh, we have the example of this first church who was not confused about where its source of joy came from. God, that it wasn't circumstantial or conditional. God, I thank you that we, uh, we have the same gospel, the same Savior, the same Jesus as they did. Help us, God, now to take inventory of our life as we begin 2014. And God, we want to say thank you for what you've done in redemption over the last three years, and we, we know that it's enough. But we will continue to obey you and pray that you would continue to show off in our community. And I'm convinced that if you do, it'll come in a very simple way, that your people just love you more. God, help us do it. Pursue us, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you Sunday.